Well, I'm sure you noticed that I stopped reading short there in verse 19. I said I was going to read all of 22. I'm going to save those final verses for next week. So just as my wife told me, you lied. <laughs> um, sorry. Didn't mean to. Uh, there's an old Peanuts cartoon. If any of you uh, are uh, as old as me or older, that remember the Peanuts cartoon um, back when we had newspapers. Uh, Lucy and Linus and Charlie Brown are all laying on this hill in the grass, and they're looking up at the clouds, and, and um, Lucy says something about them looking like cotton balls. And then she says this, if you, see, uh, if you use your imagination, you can see lots of things in the formations. And then she asks Linus, what do you think you see? And Linus points to the clouds, and he, he points over there, and he says, well, those clouds up there look like the map of British Honduras in the Caribbean. Then he points over there and he says, the, the clouds up there, they, uh, that cloud looks like the profile of Thomas Eakins. He's a, um, a painter and a, a sculptor. Uh, and then he points to another group and he says, and, and that group right there, that gives me the impression of the stoning of Stephen. And that one looks like Paul standing there right, right there. Then Lucy asks Charlie Brown, well, what do you see in the clouds, Charlie Brown? And Charlie says, well... I was going to say I saw a ducky and a horsey, but I changed my mind. When we compare ourselves to others, what happens? Um, at times we feel a little bit inadequate, and other times we feel a lot inad inadequate, significantly inadequate. In our story tonight that we read from Genesis 22, while it's meant to encourage us and strengthen our faith, it, it's possible that it could potentially do the opposite and discourage us. It could cause us to question our faith when it's meant to do the opposite. So if we're going to be encouraged rather than discouraged, I want us to remember a few things. I want us to go back and think about everything that's happened since chapter 12, though we're not going to do that um, one by one. You see, the, the chapter 22 begins after these things, and that could include, of course, everything in chapter 21, which it does, but I think it could also include everything back to chapter 12. It, can, it could include all the ups and the downs and the tossing and the turning and all the victories and defeats that Abraham has experienced since chapter 12 when he left Ur. I think they could include all the events that put his faith on full display as well as his doubt. I think it could include those situations where he remained faithful. We've seen that. But we've also seen him when his faith faltered. I think it could also include the times when he considered the best interests of everybody around him, but also there were times when he thought of nobody but himself. I think it could include all those times that he lived with honor and those times that we've seen when he acted with dishonor. I think it includes every bit of his life. All of his life, he, he was tried and tested, and he at times succeeded, and he at times failed. Guess what? Just like you and me. He was just like us. So I hope that helps as we walk through. Our outline is probably as simple as it could be. We're going to look at three things. We're going to consider the characters of the story. We're going to consider God. We're going to consider Abraham. And then we're going to consider Isaac. The outline is in the normal place in your bulletin. You'll find it there. 
Um, if you're a guest with us, that's in the back of the bulletin. And children, you'll find your words there uh, listed under the title of the sermon there in the middle of the bulletin. Be listening for those. Um, we're going to consider... We're going to consider God, who's the main character of the story. We're going to consider Abraham. And I believe we can consider Abraham because I think we're able to do that without falling into the traps of universalizing something that was particular. I think we can do that without making something prescriptive out of what was descriptive. I think we can do that without making some type of moralistic or legalistic application. And that's because both the writer of Hebrews and James set Abraham up as an example of faith. Not that we're to be like Abraham, but we are to exhibit the same faith that he exhibited. Uh, and then we're going to look at Isaac. Um, and I think we can do that because of the deliberate allusions to our passage mentioned by the, divinely, the divine authors or the divinely inspired authors of the New Testament and uh, their significance in interpreting this pericope. Okay? Uh, so again, you'll find that in the back of your bulletin. Let's pray before we begin. Father, in these moments, uh, would you please convict our hearts and renew our minds and strengthen our faith and fortify our wills by your Spirit through the preaching of your Word. May we receive it gladly and with anticipation. Would you fill me with your Spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Attend to me as I do this work you've called me to do, and I ask that you would use me as you see fit for the sake of Christ and His church. It's in his name that I ask these things. Amen. So let's begin first in our text by looking at what it teaches us about God. And we can then, there are a number of things. If we laid it all out and began to talk about it, each of us might find something different. I want to focus on three things. The first is I want us to notice how God is a God who presses. Look at verse 1. He says, after these things, God tested Abraham. Now, this wasn't a test that sought to tempt Abraham into sinning. And we know that because of the book of James. James writes that God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So we need to get that out front, that that's not what it is. But this test, what it is, it was a test in which God sought to apply external pressure to Abraham so that what was internal would come out. Children, when you brush your teeth, I'm sure both morning and evening, right? You squeeze the the tooth, the... Yeah, the toothpaste, what, what comes out? I should have said squeeze the tube. I just gave it away. When you squeeze the tube, what comes out? Do you brush your teeth? <laughs> Children, when you squeeze the tube, what comes out? Toothpaste. Thank you very much. All right. When God tests us, he pressures us or squeezes us because he wants to, and more likely, he wants us to see what comes out. He tests us in the words of Peter. He he tests the genuineness of our faith. He tests us to know, uh, to let us know who we really are and what's in our hearts. And the hope is that what comes out is obedience that exhibits our faith. This was also a test designed to, to do to his faith, to Abraham's faith, what the refiner's fire does to precious metals or fine metals. A refiner's fire heats those metals and brings the dross and impurities to the top. And then someone comes along and skims it off before it cools so that when it cools, it's more pure and more stable than it was before. 
And of course, this test, again, in the words of Peter, it was a test designed to result in the praise and honor and glory of God. And notice this test came by His Word. Verse 1 says that God tested Abraham and said. Abraham didn't know it was a test. This is something Moses lets us in on as the author and writer of, of this book. But the command that served as a test was spoken by the Lord. It came in the form of very clear instruction. There was no doubt Right? There, were, there was no room to speculate or to guess what the Lord wanted him to do. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. So God is a God who presses. We learn that God is a God who presses. Secondly, in this chapter, we see that God is a God who provides. Look at verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide. And we'll talk about more of the context of that and more of what he actually provided when we focus our attention on Isaac. What I want us to focus our attention on here is where he provides and the pattern that was established in the provision. God told Abraham to go to Moriah. And he told him to go there and to climb up the mountain, that, one of the mountains that was there. And we're not told which one, but apparently Abraham was And because the Lord provides there, when he gets to the top and does what he was told, and the Lord provides, verse 14 says, Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. And what's interesting about this verb that's translated to provide, it's also, it can also be translated to see. And so we could could read this, God will provide, or we could read this, God will see. And then in verse 14, where we read that um, it labeled uh, when he said this, this place will be the Lord will provide, it could also be named the Lord will see to it. And Derek Kidner says it deserves to be better known as in the mount, it will come clear. You say, well, why is that significant? Well, even though we can't say specifically whether or not this all took place on Mount Moriah, which Second um, Chronicles chapter 3 tells us is the place where the, the temple was built. Over time, we're told that a pattern developed. And that pattern began to develop with Abraham, and it continued to, to Moses, because Moses said in verse 14, as it is said, to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So this pattern was established, and this pattern that was established with it is that God's people would ascend the mountain or the hill, and at the top of that hill or the top of that mountain, God would provide for them. They would ascend the mountain and ascend the hill, that hill or mountain that was holy, and they would enter into God's presence, whether into His presence or into the sanctuary of of His presence, and their needs would be met at that place. In Asaph's case, in Psalm 73, when he was struggling to understand, he he couldn't grasp the fact that God's people were suffering and their enemies were were prospering. He couldn't couldn't get it into his mind. And so in Psalm 73, he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed wearisome to me. I couldn't figure it out. But then he says this, until, I, I couldn't figure it out, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. It all became clear. He ascended the mountain. He entered the sanctuary. And things became clear. 
And brothers and sisters, that pattern continues today. It didn't stop in the Old Testament. It continued into the New Testament. You've heard me say this before. Not just about the table, not just about baptism, but something happens when we come into this place and worship. Something happens. There is something significant about public corporate worship, so significant that nothing else you or I experience happens to us the rest of the week like it does here. We're all bruised. We're all battered by the end of the week. And we come into this place carrying any number of burdens. And as you heard Aaron before we began, and as he prayed in the invocation, you know, we come in and we lay those things down. But where do we lay them? We lay them at his feet. But we carry them in nonetheless, as we should. We're weak and needy, and we come and we bring those in. And when we do... We learned, if you remember in our study of Hebrews, that when we enter into this place by the Spirit, we ascend the spiritual mountain of the Lord of Mount Zion. And when we do, He meets our needs. He provides for us. He sees to it. He makes things clear. And it's here that we realize in the words of Dale Ralph Davis that adoring God will lift more of our burdens than understanding our burdens. I'm going to say that again. Adoring God will lift more of our burdens than understanding our burdens. So he presses, he provides, and the third thing he does is, of course, he promises. And we've seen that over and over, have we not? And in verses 15 to 18, he repeats it again. God reminds Abraham of the promises that he's made to him. He says that, that these promises have been made to him and they've been secured by the Lord who swore in his own name because there was no name higher. And he, he reminded Abraham that he would have as many descendants as the stars of the sky or the sand of the, sea, uh, the seashore. He reminded him and really expanded upon the promise that not only would they possess the land, but they would conquer the land. And then he told him that he, that he and his descendants, that his descendants would would bless all of the nations of the world. But then he says this, I'm doing this because you obeyed my voice, and I'm, sh I'm sure you heard it when I read it. And the thought that went through your mind is, wait a minute. It sounds like God is saying Abraham earned the promises through his obedience. But we know that God made the promises to Abraham before there was any obedience. So how can they be how can they be prom gracious promises and at the same time rewards for obedience? Well, let me simply say this. We learned in our study of James that living faith is an active faith, right? Works are a natural fruit of our salvation, of our faith. They're a result of the work that God is doing within us, right? Sanctification always follows justification. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then God, by His Spirit, by faith, continues to sanctify us and work within us. And the Lord then actually rewards us for the works we do, even though it's not possible for us to do them apart from His grace. So when God blessed Abraham on account of his obedience. He was really rewarding him for the perseverance that he enabled Abraham to exhibit. 
By His marvelous grace, our Father, in the words of chapter 16 of our confession, looks upon our good works in His Son and is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. So our good works, still tainted, right? Still tainted with sin. They're not perfect, but God accepts them. But He doesn't just accept them. He rewards them. The marvelous and matchless grace of God. That means in the words of Ligon Duncan, if we want to walk in greater assurance, we should walk in greater faith and obedience. As we walk in greater faith and obedience, our faith is assured. He will see to it. So that's what it tells us about God. He presses, he provides, and he promises. What does the text tell us about Abraham? I think you can guess just by the plain reading. Uh, it tells us that he was a man of faith who trusted the Lord, and he exhibited that trust through obedience to his word. As I mentioned a few moments ago, the test that came from God, it came from his word. It was, it was clear instruction. There was no doubt what he wanted Abraham to do. There was no guessing. There was no speculating. And the test was like unlike anything that anyone before or anyone since has ever heard or experienced. Nobody has experienced a test like this. Look at verse 3. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. No matter, I've read this all week, no matter how hard we may try, we cannot fathom this request. We try, and people have tried to, have tried to do that, and they've written those things down, but we cannot fathom this. There's not a person alive, I don't think there's a person alive who would have looked at Abraham and, and been upset or, or thought, how could you, if he had, he, if he had said, nope, not going to do it. And that's because it seems absurd. That simply means it seems unreasonable and illogical. When we think about it, it, it contradicted everything that we, the last nine chapters, it contradicts everything that we've, we've been hearing. It makes absolutely no sense at all. He'd been called to leave, right, his home, his family, his country in chapter 12. His, he'd been called to leave his past. Now he's being called to leave his future, that future that God had promised him and that he and Sarah had been gripping and holding on to and clinging to. And the Lord's asking him to forsake it all. In the words of Richard Belcher, God was asking Abraham to put to death his hope for the future. He goes on to say, the test was asking Abraham to choose God over his own son and to trust God to fulfill his promises, the promises he made. Even when it appeared, he was putting to death the hope of those promises. And we're, we're, we're not told, we, you can go back and look, we're not told what went through Abraham's mind or how he felt. We think we, 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 think we can imagine, but we're not told. We're not told what he thought at the time, we're not told what he thought that night, we're not told what he thought and felt the next three days as he journeyed toward the mountain. And you know me, 
I don't know that it's a good idea for us to speculate. Because we might get some things right, but we might get some things wrong. And, and there's that temptation to, to sensationalize it all. Right? And purposely try to tug it, I hate this phrase, but tug at heartstrings. Right? The best thing for us to do is to focus on what we know. Not what we don't know. What do we know? We don't know how he thought. We don't know how he felt. We just know what he did. At some point, he became resolute. I'm not saying he had all of his questions answered. I'm not saying he had resolved all of the contradictions. I'm not saying he had processed all of his feelings. The answer is probably no to all those. Again, we don't know, but the answer is probably no. I'm simply saying that he made a decision and he was committed to that decision. And his decision was to obey the Lord. And we know that because he got up early, saddled the donkeys, grabbed two of his servants, cut all the wood, and we could talk about the order and how interesting that is. I mean, who, who wouldn't have cut the wood first and then, done? and then he grabbed Isaac and they headed out. And that had to be the, the, those had to be the longest and worst three days of his 36,500 plus days of life. And when they, when they arrived to the place which God had told him, Moses said that Abraham looked up, he saw the mountain, um, where he was supposed to go, and then he said something really interesting. He looks at the servants and he says, okay, you guys stay here, I'm going to take Isaac, we're going to go up there, and we're going to worship, and then we're coming back. We're coming back. And that causes, why would he say that? Was he trying to make his servants, you know, trying to keep them from being privy to what was about to happen because he didn't want them to intervene? Was he in a state of denial? Was he, or had he come up with a new plan, which we've seen he was willing to do? And I think the answer is to no to all those things. And I think I'm right because of our New Testament reading. Right, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Now notice how the writer in Hebrews describes him. He describes him, as, describes him as the one who had received the promises. So this one who had received the promises, who was a recipient of those promises, he was believing in and trusting in the giver of those promises. And that trust led him to obey. By faith, Abraham believed that he was going to fulfill the promises. And so, because he believed that, he reasoned, right? He's, he's, he had to reason that if, that if he was going to keep his promises, but at the same time he, was going to, he told him to offer up Isaac on the altar of burnt offering, that he was going to have to raise Isaac from the dead. They would return together because that was the only way for God to keep his word.
in his mind. Well, Moses said that Abraham took the knife and the fire, he put the wood on Isaac, and they set out. Isaac had been raised well, right? Raising the fear and admonition of the Lord. Says, hey, Dad, wait a minute. We need a lamb for the burnt offering. Where is it? I can't imagine a more gut-wrenching question. Abraham looks at him and says, it's okay. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide the lamb. And they continued on the ascent. When they arrive, Abraham builds the altar, puts the wood in order, binds Isaac, places him on the altar, takes the knife, and moves to slaughter him. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't ask us to believe that which isn't true. But he sometimes asks us to believe in things that seem unreasonable. He asks us to believe in things that at times may seem even absurd. He asks asks us to believe in things that we don't understand and that we can't comprehend. And the faith he gives us, again, the faith he gives us, is an objective, substantial, and foundational surety and certainty and confidence in Him and in His Word. And it's that absolute certainty and and surety and confidence that R. Kent Hughes says makes the future present and the unseen visible. And I'm sure several in this room tonight are in the midst of faith tests. You're being squeezed. The heat's being turned up. And God's asking you to be faithful, to obey His Word, and to rest in His promises. He's asking you to choose Him above Himself, above... above. He's asking you to trust Him and to put Him first before yourself and before your comfort. But to do so, you know, will come at a cost. And you're not sure whether that cost is something that you want to pay. There may be a sin you need to confess and repent, uh, and repent of that you know if you do will hurt others around you. You may need to forgive someone that's hurt you, or you may need to ask someone to forgive you that you've hurt. You may be asked to do something or to say something that would compromise your faith. You may be contemplating a decision that's contrary to the will of God, the moral will of God. You may be in a relationship you shouldn't be in, or you may be considering a relationship you shouldn't be in. You may be facing ridicule for your failure to conform to the world and its vain philosophies and ideologies. 
You may be being encouraged to pursue or affirm a lifestyle or lifestyles that are are unbiblical. Children or teenagers, you, you may be experiencing pressure from friends to to be negative or talk negative about your parents or, or to disrespect them or to dishonor them in some way, to disobey them. If you're in the midst of any of those things, or maybe there's something that I haven't mentioned, or maybe you're not in the midst of a faith test, but you have been and you know they'll come again, please know that you will never regret or be worse off for choosing what is right or saying what is true or doing that which is pure, noble, and worthy of praise. You can be faithful to God's Word. You can obey His Word because your God has made incredible promises to you. He has promised that if you will confess your sin and repent of your sin, He will cleanse you of your sin and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. No questions asked. He's promised that He will work all things together for your good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. All things. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. And he's promised if you will look to him in faith, you will not be disappointed. Period. What else do we need? So that's God, that's Abraham. Now, what about Isaac? What does the text tell us about Isaac? Well, first we learn that Isaac's a type of Christ, right? We see it in the text. Like Christ, he was the son of promise. Like Christ, his birth was supernatural. Like Christ, his father, right? He was, or he was the son. Um, or I should, like Christ, he was his father's only and beloved son. Put it that way. Like Christ, he carried his own wood up the mountain. Like Christ, he was led to slaughter by his father. Just as God was willing to offer his son out of love for his people, Abraham was willing to offer his son to the Lord because he loved the Lord. Just as God raised Christ from the dead, Abraham believed God could and would raise Isaac from the dead. But we also learn something else. And that is that Isaac wasn't a type of Christ. There's actually a debate about that. You say, why wasn't he a type of Christ? Well, unlike Christ, he wasn't killed. And unlike Christ, he was not a substitute, but was substituted for. In the words of one commentator, Isaac was not sacrificed, he was not put to death, he was not burned as an incense gift to God, and he made neither expiation or propitiation for others. It was the ram 
provided at a suitable moment that became a substitutionary sacrifice on the altar, substituting, in fact, for us. You see, even Isaac needed a substitute. We all need a substitute. We all need a substitute because we, like Abraham, remember what I said in the beginning, we don't always make right choices. And we offend a holy God. He provided a ram for Isaac, but he provided the lamb for you and me. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Romans 8, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? This was, by the way, in the preparation for worship. What then shall we say about these things or to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? And we say that a lot. But what gave Paul the confidence to say that? And what gives us the confidence to repeat that and to say that and to stand firm in that? It's the next verse. He who did not spare or withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The angel of the Lord cried out to Abraham, remember, do not lay a hand on that boy. And he spared Isaac. But there was no cry that spared God's son. There was no cry that spared the Lord Jesus. In the words of Richard Belcher, God did not ask Abraham to do what he himself was not willing to do for the salvation of his people. Give up his only son as a substitute sacrifice for their salvation. I heard a story this week from another pastor, and I did the best I could to find the actual, where it actually came from. It could be true, it could not. Many people quoted as if it is, couldn't find the original resource, but anyway, I'm going to share it. <laughs> Luther, it is supposed that Luther was reading Genesis 22 during a family devotion, and when he came to the end, his wife Katie said, I don't believe it. She said, God would not have treated his son like that. And Luther turned to her and said, but Katie, he did. He did. And brothers and sisters, he did that for you and me. For you, for me, and all who will look to Christ in faith. Let's pray together. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love and lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives for your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen.